we deal with people coming in for a while, and then we've already, just in a, not even two years of being here at Church at the Red Door, we've already lost some very capable, wonderful people that we love, and uh, not just, I mean, that have moved or gone to Florida. I know we've had Floridians and different places, or their season in the desert ended, but that doesn't mean they end, that just means the season ends, and so we're actually going to see that over this uh, coming few weeks when we go into the book of Ephesians. I got to be honest with you, I am excited about this. I am excited about this, this deep dive into the book of Ephesians. Today we're going to spend some time setting it up. Where did this church come from? What happened? So let, as we always do, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Your word is transformative. It's living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide thoughts and intentions, Lord. Get down into our very joints and marrow, Lord. It's impossible for us to understand the profound impact that words have. And your word is vibrant and alive. And so, Lord, as we go into this, it's not just a history lesson this morning. Lord, this is your divine-inspired word that you gave some 2,000 years ago for the New Testament and 3,500 years ago and counting for the Old Covenant. And Lord, so we thank you for your word. It changes our lives. It changes the way we see reality. It changes our relationships within families. So we need your Holy Spirit to guide us through this study of Ephesians. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You ready for this? Well, first of all, let's talk about it's important to start. We're going to start in the book of Acts today, and some of you have been around teaching. Some of you I go back with for years, and uh, for the, the Red Door Bible study on, on Wednesday nights, we sometimes had 250 people that would show up for that Bible study, even way before Church at the Red Door started. And you will know well that the book of Acts is a linking book. Linked to what? So in your New Testament, remember you have 39 books in the Old Testament, and they were completely codified well in advance of Jesus. And about 300 to 400 years before the time of Jesus, the old, what we call the Old Testament or the Tanakh was complete and codified. Alexandrian, 70 or 72, they don't know, Alexandrian Jews got together and they had the Greek Septuagint, which was a copy of the Old Testament, again, well in advance, almost 200 years in advance of Jesus. So that Jesus often quoted from the Septuagint in Greek, and he taught in Aramaic and, and uh, spoke Koine Greek as well. And so that was in place. Now, the New Testament began to be written some, scholars debate, but within 40 or 50 years, actually even sooner than that from the time of Jesus, but 40 or 50 A.D., they began to write some of these letters, excuse me, not the letters, because not, not the letters, but some of the Gospels. And, and there's a lot of debate about when that happened, but I would speculate that sometime between about 30 years after the time of Jesus and then the time of John on his, the, the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, probably 90-ish, somewhere in there, our entire New Testament was written. So we have four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you turn to the New Testament, you get that. Then you have this book called The Acts, A-C-T-S, The Acts of the Apostles. And that links us to pretty much the rest of the Bible with the exception of some of the pastorals, Philemon, Timothy, some Paul wrote specific letters to these guys. But even they kind of, where did Timothy come from? He came from the book of Acts. So we see in the book of Acts the launch of the gospel. The book of Acts gives us a picture of how did all this come about? What are we doing here in La Quinta, uh, Palm Desert, California? I'm sorry, I live in La Quinta. For those of you on live stream, 
people say, well, I thought this was in Palm Springs. Some people, it's a Coachella Valley. There's Palm Springs. There's like eight cities here in the, in the valley that crisscross along. And, and from all the way, Coachella, Mecca, Indio, all the way to Palm Springs, which is in the west. And then we're actually right in the middle here at Church at the Red Door in Palm Desert currently. We may not always be here, but we're here now. So if you look back and you see these book of the, the book of Acts, what you get is you get this launch of the church. That's why we're here 2,000 years later. How did this thing get started? It was a little group of Jewish men and women who believed because they had seen a resurrected Jesus. And now they're trying to, and then Jesus turns and says, okay, I've invested a lot of time in you 12. We've lost one of them, as the prophets had seen. Zechariah had seen that. We've lost one of us. We replaced, and they replaced him with Matthias, and now we press forward, and I want you guys, tax collectors, fishermen, nobodies, not big famous people, I want you to take the gospel, I want you to start right here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the remotest parts of the earth. I mean, we're pretty remote to Jerusalem, almost halfway around the earth. I mean, I've said before, you could drive a pen right through Jerusalem, come out the other end of the globe. And you'd come to somewhere about where we are, not too far off from where we are. It's an amazing thing. And we, many of our lives, I don't know where you are today in your own walk, but many of our lives have been radically changed by this message propagated by not just Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, I only came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He knew he was not going to take the message himself in his physical body. Now, he certainly does it through the vehicle of the Holy Spirit. But he was going to count on these 12 to take it to the ends of the earth. Now, did they actually get to the ends of the earth? No, but they started a movement that is chronicled in the book of Acts. And so when we open this up, we get this unpacking. And then we all of a sudden have this amazing thing that happens to a guy named Saul who would become the Apostle Paul, not Pastor Paul, the Apostle Paul who was actually in the process of killing those. And many of you know the story well, the road to Damascus. He gets knocked off his horse. He's blinded, and Jesus appears to him and said, you've been chosen for a very specific purpose. And so we don't know how long from the moment that he lost his sight and then regained it through one of the servants and believers in Jesus we don't know how long that was, maybe 10, 11, 12 years, something like that. We know he had gone down to the Arabian Peninsula for a while. We know it was a long, arduous process of him trying to rethink everything. He was a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel. He was, he was an amazing, amazing apostle that we look back now. But when this started, he was killing this people group called the way. Those Jews that kept hanging tenaciously onto this crazy story about Jesus having raised from the dead. And then he, because he was so trained, was able to go back into the Old Testament or the Tanakh and began to say, oh my gosh, it was always here. Jesus is leaping off the pages from Genesis all the way to Malachi. He's, he's there and he, he begins to unpack that. And he takes the gospel into the, all around the Mediterranean region, especially to the north. Not, he didn't get out into Africa, northern Africa. But he begins to take it. And on his first missionary journey, could we pull up that map here real quick? Guys, I'd appreciate that. We're going to try to get a general sense of how this thing happened and why are they writing the book? Why is he writing this letter to the church at Ephesus? So here you see a map, and I don't know how well I'm going to be able to do this, but basically... 
where we are is down here. We're, uh, Israel's down here. In fact, the college is right on the Mediterranean, right in Netanya here, very, the very southern part, very middle part of, of Israel. It's only about, it points between the West Bank, it's only about 25 miles wide. And so Paul starts here, he's on the road to Damascus, and uh, he's, blocked, he's knocked out, and then he starts in this church here at Antioch, which is in modern-day Lebanon, Syria, that area now, the region that we would, and a lot, lots going on in modern-day Lebanon and Syria, would you agree? And that's where it goes. So he says, look, they commission him, and he takes off, and he goes first to the island of Cyprus on his first missionary journey, and then begins to work up. Uh, and he, he goes to places like Lystra, and he goes to uh, Iconium, and he goes to all these various places. This would be what we call modern-day Turkey. Now, this was Asia Minor at the time. So he just takes this little quick loop right here, right up to Iconium, and right in here, and then heads back, and then heads back. And that's his first missionary journey. Doesn't get anywhere close to where we're going to be talking about, which is Ephesus, which is right up here in this very far corner, and right up, buttressing up against, he's, Ephesus is on the, on the very eastern side of the Aegean Sea. So that's where we're headed, but the first missionary journey, no, just right here, and then they came back home. And then after a bit of time, spending some time there at Antioch, the church at Antioch, they said, look, we're going to pray for you guys, and then we're going to send you out again, and I want you to go back to the places that you were sent last time and begin to see how the churches are doing and then that inaugurates his second missionary journey that we see laid out in the book of acts and if you have your bibles i want you to go to acts chapter 16 now acts chapter 16 they are on their way they have they are by land and they are they didn't go to cyprus this time they went back up on land and they are headed back up to the very cities that they had gone last time. And in fact, at Lystra, what happens is they meet this young guy, Timothy. And Timothy joins them on their by-foot voyage around the Mediterranean. And he takes off with them. And Paul, on his second missionary journey, had he knew exactly where he was going. He's headed down to this, maybe Ephesus, maybe not, but he's going down into Asia Minor. He said, this is going to be incredible. I, I have this idea, and we're going to take the gospel. I mean, this is important places, this Ephesus and this area, port city, very cosmopolitan place, this place, Ephesus. And that's where he had a mind to go. And then we pick up the story here in Acts 16, verse 4. Let's, let's read together. It says, now while they were passing through the cities. Now, the cities are what? The cities that they had already been to, and they were revisiting to see what the, had the message taken root. You ever had that in your own life where you shared something and maybe you shared your testimony and a person's like, ah, that, that, that guy's crazy. And then maybe you came back two or three years later and somehow they'd come to Christ and now they were, uh, they were going to a local church and they said, you know, your testimony had a profound impact on me. And you're just going, this is unbelievable. The seed of the gospel is so powerful that it goes into places and you, you just think, well, I don't know how much we're accomplishing here. You ever feel that in the kingdom? You said, I'd like to, maybe at my business, do something. And it doesn't seem like anything's happening. But then you look back five years later and you realize that seed has planted and sprouted and now it's actually bearing fruit. You just played a little role. God did all the work, but you got the... Boy, you said, I got to play a part in the kingdom. That's powerful. It's powerful. So they were going back through the cities, and they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders 
who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. Now, in the meantime, in Acts 15, between the first missionary journey and the second, they had this thing called the Jerusalem Council. They'd come back and told about all these non-Jews called Gentiles, and they were saying, all these these Gentiles are buying into our deal here. They're believing in Jesus. Unbelievable things are happening. They came and reported this, and the the Jewish community in Jerusalem didn't know what to do with this. What do we do with these Gentiles? I mean, we did not see this coming. This has caught us by surprise. Now, it shouldn't have. Isaiah, many, many 700 years before this time, Isaiah had seen a day, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, many places where he sees, no, 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 we're going to be a light to the nations. And in fact, in Acts 13, Paul had actually said, we, the believing Jewish community, are that light to the nations. We've been called to be the light. Now, ultimately, the light is Jesus, but now Jesus is living in them, so it's not hard for Paul to say, we're the light to the nations. And now they're seeing this played out. Now, they didn't know what to do with this. So they said, and I know this is hard for us to understand today, keep them away things from things that are strangled, <laughs> that blood there. Keep them away from sexual impurity, but I guess just let them flood on in because the stories we're getting is that the nations are buying into this Jesus thing. They didn't know what to do with that. So now they're headed back out. And that's what they're referring to here when they said, well, they're going to share the decrees with these newly planted churches. Now, all this starts, uh, his missionary journeys, uh, around, but between, uh, around 50 A.D., just to give you an idea. About 25 to 30 years after the time Jesus had ascended back to the right hand of the Father. Just to give you chronologically a kind of a picture in your mind as to how this is unfolding that's obviously affected you. Somehow, you're here. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or even believe in this yet, somehow you're here. Well, you may be on YouTube. You may be, who knows where you, how you got here, but somehow we're talking about this 2,000 years later. This is how it launched. So they were sharing it. So the churches, verse uh, 5, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and they were increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing through Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul. In the night, a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to him. Okay, back to the map here. So when we pull up this map, he he had wanted to go to this area. He'd wanted to go to Asia Minor here. They had had this vision to go here. But then all of a sudden, he got this... He had this thing that happened, and up and around the Aegean Sea is Macedonia, which we can't see in our picture here, and he he just has a vision. He has a vision of this guy from Macedonia. Who who is it? And and he's just saying, come here, come come see us. Do you realize that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when you know it in your spirit, dreams and visions are part of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I've been very directed through my life at various points by dreams that I've had. Not every dream, I can promise you. But some that I know in my spirit are directives from the Holy Spirit. Now, you got to realize, I mean, that's a big deal. It's not just, well, it's all right, let's go to Macedonia. I mean, it's not like hopping in the car and driving 30 minutes down the road. This is a total renavigation. It's like with your GPS. And the GPS is trying to get them back to Asia, you know, recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. No, I've had the vision. 
Now, what do they have to go on? Well, they have all these churches. There's nobody. Macedonia and Philippi specifically will become the very first place in Europe. Now, most of us in here, not all, but most of us would be of European descent. You know who the first one was? It was just a lady named, anybody remember? Lydia, seller of purple fabric. They didn't even, they didn't have it. Nobody ushered them in. Nobody brought, nobody picked them up at the airport and then ushered them to their nice quarters like I had in Dallas. I mean, I had people picking me up and taking me to beautiful homes and nice things prepared and all, and all the board meetings and everything. And there's snacks and water and all. They had none of that. None of it. So where do we go? We felt, we, and I'm sure, you know, maybe Timothy and some of the guys, and just because Paul has a dream and we're headed that way. Why? I don't know. All right, we're with Paul. Let's go. And then make this huge trek all the way up to Macedonia. And they don't know what to do. So they get there. And what do they do? They go down by the river because people were gathered there. You know, we've got to remember that as a church. We have a calling here in the valley. Many other churches have callings as well, but we have a calling, a specific calling. Just people that congregate. Many of you are members at country clubs. Many of you go to school or, or work at a business. Where, where do people gather? And then just go down there. And then the Bible says that God gave Lydia the faith to believe. She was the first European convert. Very first one to this crazy, weird thing coming out of what? This seemingly inconsequential place down here called Israel, way down here. We can't even really see where it is here. And at, what? How does this even the first one, now billions of Europeans of European descent have come in over the last 2,000 years and been utterly transformed by Jesus. Well, he makes his way around the Aegean and they go and they, uh, they are in Berea, Philippi, and that's where we get the Philippian jailer, you know, where you see then they had an earthquake and the jailer and his family all get saved and they go down to the Bereans and the Bereans are testing in Acts 17 whether these things can possibly be true. He makes his way, a few other cities he hits going down, but then he goes to Athens and that's where we get the great Acts 17 picture again of the Areopagus. And they're there, and he goes up and begins to debate with some Stoic philosophers and some Epicurean philosophers, and that's what we call Mars Hill to this day. And, it, and Paul preaches a message with people that are part of a polythe, polytheistic culture, very much similar to what we have today. We have a very strange, I mean, you look at this valley, we are a mixed bag, aren't we? I mean, East Valley, I was trying to describe it to some of my Texas friends this week, East Valley and West Valley and Mid Valley, I mean, you've got... People like Bill Gates and people with billions and billions of di- Indian Wells is one of the highest per capita incomes in the whole world. And they're right there. And just a few miles away, you have people living under trees. And it's just a strange place. But also, in some ways, very cosmopolitan. A lot of money here. A lot of fancy restaurants. A lot of, a lot of hot Hollywood celebrity kind of stuff here in the valley. Uh, in some ways, not too dissimilar to some of the places that Paul was going. And it, you can't just always jump in with Jesus. Sometimes you have to say, well, do you even believe in God? And sometimes you have to lay some foundation. That's what we see that he did in his Mars Hill sermon. Maybe we'll go into that in a little more depth sometime in the coming future. But that's what occurs. And eventually he ends up in Corinth, a port city, a very strategic city. And he stays there for a year and a half. And then he heads back down, he crosses the Aegean, he heads back over and goes to Ephesus. But what happened while he was in Corinth? He meets a man and a woman who he actually was just building tents with. Many of you know the story. Priscilla 
and Aquila, or some people can say, or Aquila or Aquila. We always used to call it Priscilla and Aquila. It's actually Aquila. And, and here they are, and they come with him. I, they, they left everything that they had, everything that they knew. They had become followers of Jesus. Paul spent a year and a half there and was really working them over with his teaching about Jesus. And they go with him to Ephesus, and then he leaves them there. Let's pick this up in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, verse 19. Now, all of this is important for us. It's easy. We could, and it's, it's okay to do this, jump right into this letter to the Ephesians and just kind of go at it. And there, there are some eternal truths and some beautiful pictures. But I think if you have in your mind the, the challenge it was to start here and the fact that the church is, has been birthed here is against all odds. In Dallas this week, I was telling some of my friends, you know, the first thing, I got off the plane and, and one of the guys picked me up before we had some meetings and he said, we were driving by and there was Gateway Church. Gateway Church is, with their satellites is 30,000 people or something, you know. And uh, he goes, do you want to go in and see this church? Do you want to go in and just look at it? And I said, yes. And I had this vision for Church at the Red Door. No, I didn't have it. Uh, I, I know we're never going to do something like that. But, you know, it was cool. We walked in and, 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 the, and the doors were locked into the main sanctuary. And, uh, you know, and it's just middle of the day. But there were people there in this room, and they have this going, I don't know if it's 24 hours a day. They have worship going, I think, around the clock. And there's a room just of work. People just come in there at work, and they just go in there. And, and who knows, maybe we'll have that one day. We'll just have worship going around the clock. There's only maybe 40, 40, 50 people in there. But they were in there just worshiping God. And, they, and there's bookstores and coffee deals and, and the kids and all this. It, it was like 230,000-square-foot church. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. And then a guy walks by and, 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 said, and, and our guy, his, his family worked there, and they, so they had some connections there. And he said, can, can I just get this as a pastor from Southern California? Can we just peek in? He said, sure. And he unlocked, and we got to look in there. Over 4,000 people in this theater. It was just amazing. And, and Robert Morris, and, and I've, I've, I've watched him. He's a really uh, articulate guy, wonderful, wonderful guy, planted this church. But then we left there, and I'm going, Gateway, man, this is probably the church of Dallas. We all go like one block, and there's another church for like 10,000 people. And then we go another five blocks, there's another church, and then there's another church. And I'm just thinking, there are churches on every corner. It's unbelievable. And the spirit in Dallas is good. A lot of things are going on. And, I mean, 1,100 people just coming out for our little, our little banquet about the seminary. It's just unbelievable. And then I think about the Coachella Valley, and I think, and many of you know this, if every single church was completely packed every single week twice, we'd still only reach 15% of this valley during peak season. Not Dallas. Ephesus was not Dallas either. Neither was Corinth or Athens. They had nothing, obviously. This is the, the very beginning. But how do you move into a place like that? Are people really going to care about this message? Is this relevant to us today? I mean, they've got, as we're going to see in a minute, goddesses that fell out of the, fall out of the sky. And they've got, you know, they, I mean, it's a polytheistic culture. There are crazy things going, orgies, sexual impurity going everywhere. I mean, the, the last thing in the world, are they going to find a place for the gospel? Only if it's the actual words of God and has power. And it did. Acts chapter 18, verse 19. says, then they came to Ephesus. And he left them there. Now, who is them? Well, it's Priscilla and Aquila that he had met in Corinth. And now he's going to leave them there. 
All right? So they, get, they, they hear the message. God gives them faith, not too different than in Lydia beside the riverbank. Gives them faith. They start to say, yes, I, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They got filled with the Spirit. No doubt they had seen many miracles occur. He says, why don't you go with me on our, my next journey? They cross the Aegean. They go to Ephesus. He's there for a little bit, and then he leaves. And you, why don't you guys stay here and start a church? How would you feel about that? What if uh, tomorrow I said, I grabbed a couple of you couples, and I said, we're going, to, we're going to Yucca Valley. We're going somewhere. Why don't you go with me? And we went over there and says, okay, I'm going to leave you guys here now. Hope you can find a house. Hope you can work out some living arrangements. And, uh, and I'll be back in a few years, and I'll check and see how you're doing. And you had a whole year and a half. Didn't know anything about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You had a whole year and a half, and in that one year and a half, you, you've come to know everything there is to know. You think they know everything? You think I know everything? You think our pastorals think? You think any of this we know? Oh, yeah, we're trained. Everybody's really experienced in planting churches and all this. I feel like we're flying by the seat of our pants half the time running around here, but the Word is powerful, and if we lift up Jesus and He has control of this church, this church is going to have an impact on this valley, period. If love rules, the love of Christ rules, and we go into this hurting valley, I love it. I, I love many of you, and some of you even this morning, inviting friends, somebody, inviting a neighbor, somebody you meet, you're bringing people. Look, this isn't, again, about primarily you know, doing religious services for religious people so we can get our holy huddle in here. The very core, the very thing that drives us as a staff is to reach out and see people come to know Jesus that don't know him, that's been hurt maybe even by religion. It's the purpose of this church. It's the purpose of this church. And that was in Paul's heart. So he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Some people think this is anti-Semitic. How's that anti-Semitic? He's a Jew. You don't leave being Jewish to embrace Jesus. I've said it many times. You've never been more Jewish than you are when you are a Jew who then embraces Jesus as the Messiah. You've never been more Jewish. That's offensive. People are offended. Oh, and I even, I even dealt that with that this week. Somebody said, well, no, no, they're not Jews anymore. They're Christians. They can't say that. I said, well, how can you be Jewish and you can get into Buddhism, you can do anything and still, or be secular and not even believe in God and be Jewish. Then all of a sudden you believe that Jesus was a long way to Jewish Messiah and all of a sudden you're not Jewish anymore? Now that's ridiculous. And that is ridiculous. And I'll say that publicly until I go to the grave. So he reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he said no. But taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you again if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. All right? Now let's press on to the third missionary journey. Now what, what's going on with the third missionary journey? A little bit different deal now. He's going to go visit a few cities, and he's going to go directly to Ephesus. And he's going to check it out, see what's going on there, see, see everything that's happening, and see, maybe several years later, we don't know exactly the time lag between the time he was there and left Priscilla and Aquila there. But then he goes, and he goes back to Corinth, and he makes some other of his missionary journeys, but then, and let's pick it up. And having spent some time there, he passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. We're in Acts 18, now verse 23. Now we're going to get into the action. Now we're going to get in. We're going to learn more about Ephesus. We didn't find anything about Ephesus in, the, in his second missionary journey, but now we're going to get into the good stuff. What was going on in Ephesus? What kind, of, what kind of adversaries did they encounter? 
In fact, in his letter to the Corinthians, he, he says, A wide door for effective service has been opened to me in Ephesus, but there are many adversaries. He wrote that letter to the Corinthians. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Now, what is that? Now, the baptism of John, he's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance. Repent for the, you know, the kingdom is at hand, the, the Messiah is coming. You guys better get ready. You guys better get ready. It's a baptism of repentance. That's all he knew about. He didn't know about this, this great commission that Jesus, some, you know, 30 years earlier or so, had laid down, 20 years earlier, had laid down. Go into all the world, baptizing them, not in the name of John, but in the Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, then the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on them. It's going to be very powerful. But he only knew about the baptism of John. But he was, in many ways, very wise, and he was doing a pretty good job of explaining Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, and that he was the Messiah. So... And we get here, and he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. And then he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Can I just tell you, I mean, I, I'm constantly learning. My theology is not perfect, because if it was perfect, that would mean everybody else was wrong. We work as hard as we can on our theology. We're as orthodox as we possibly can. Historically orthodox here at Church at the Red Door. We take it very seriously. And if I get to some places that I know there's probably some disagreement, we could have stopped right there and had all kinds of disagreement about that. Well, now, you know, now this is laying on the Holy Spirit, laying on of hands is, is a second experience. And if you don't have that, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. We could just break out. We could have a church split right here this morning. You ready for that? All right, all of you people on this side of the deal, you get them over here because you can't possibly hang out with these other people that don't believe that that was. I mean, we could get into that. But usually I'll try to say, look, these are fruit-bearing people who love Jesus and they disagree on these particular points. What we all do agree on is that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Jesus literally died, was literally buried, was literally resurrected, and literally was raised back to the place next to his father and will literally come back again. We'll hang our hat on that one. You don't believe in that? You're probably not going to be very comfortable. We still invite you here, but you're probably not going to feel very comfortable here at Church at the Red Door unless you're persuaded by the Scripture that those things are true. So they, they explain the way of Jesus more accurately. I think a big part of what any church does, and it's certainly our task here at Church at the Red Door, it's Paul's task, it's Randy's task, it's, a, it's you group leaders, it's you facilitators of rooted groups and other things to bring people in and explain to them the ways of God more accurately as a function of what? Well, this is what I believe. No, as a function of the text, let the word speak for itself. Some people do sermons and they throw in one verse. You can see here, if you've attended any time, we're, we're verse by verse, line by line. We spend a lot of time in the scripture. Because we believe that it's the word that transforms us. It's easy to get our opinions about things. So, as they went on, it says, and he, verse uh, 28, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures, the scriptures at this point are the Old Testament or the Tanakh, that Jesus was the Christ. 
Now Paul at Ephesus. You ready for this? Here we go. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples. Now where did these disciples come from? There's 12 of them. Where did they come from? Well, there may have been more, but there were 12 specifically that he came Priscilla and Aquila were there. That's He left them there a few years earlier. And now they had people that were beginning. The, the roots were now, they were not just seeds. They were seeds that had exploded and were now coming up out of the ground, and there were disciples there just a few years later. If Jesus was to come here and then come back in a few years and check out and see what, and of course Jesus is with us all the time, not, let's say, Paul Cedar, one of our overseers, and he was, he was, he was here at our launch, and maybe he didn't, he didn't check in on us for two or three years. Would he come back and find fruit here at church at the Red Door? Jesus, Jesus has always said, my Heavenly Father desires that you bear much fruit. Is our fruit going to be produced here at church at the Red Door? Or are we just going to do, are we just going to play church? God, I don't want to play church. I'd rather play golf than play church. But if you're talking about people's lives being transformed, I'm all in. And I think many of you are as well. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we, we don't even know whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were all baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. But when some of them were becoming hardened and disobedient, this is a Jewish community in, in diaspora that were there in Ephesus, before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for about, catch this, two years. Some estimate at least two years and three months and maybe slightly more. Somewhere between two and three years, Paul spent at Ephesus. He never spent more time on any of his missionary journeys than he did time at Ephesus. And he, he got kind of thrown out of the synagogue. It was too much dissent. So he went over to the school of Tyrannus. A lecture hall is essentially what it was. And they just began to reason day after day about the scriptures. And the church at Ephesus was taken from a few disciples that were, needed some instruction and began to explode into the church we will see later, a church letter written to called the letter to the Ephesians. That's big time. Now, I want to finish this. So we're going to go about another seven minutes. Everybody okay? Wake up your neighbor. Do we need a seventh inning stretch? What do we know? Are you doing Okay. Is this exciting or is this boring? Now, some of you say it's boring. No, please don't say it's boring. I mean, this is good stuff. I know it's some blocking and tackling stuff here today. It's an interesting story, but you want something for your life. Well, you've already got something for your life. Now, I want to ask you this question before we press on here. Why Macedonia? Why not Ephesus first? Does it make any difference? What did we learn? When we planted this church, we talked often about times and seasons. If it wouldn't have been, just this is just my thoughts, if it wouldn't have been for Paul not going to Asia Minor, not going to Ephesus on his second missionary journey, going directly there, then what would have happened? Well, something could have great happened, but God obviously wanted Priscilla and Aquila there, and Paul hadn't met them yet. 
He had to go all the way around the Aegean, work up, Lydia, down, Bereans. He probably had, he was being trained. He was on the job training for Paul. Do you realize that in your own walk, that God will call you and say, well, I want you to do this? And he said, no, I'm ready to do this, Lord. I'm ready to do this. I, I, I'm, I, why are you holding me back here? I can lead a group. I can go over here. I can do that. I can say, no, I want you to go this direction for a little while. See, we never know when we're prepared. And, and you don't know the right people that you need to know maybe right now in this season of your life. You're going to need to meet some more people before you move more into a, more of an ultimate calling than you have right now. You need more preparation. You need to meet the right people. You need some on-the-job training. That evidently is what happened. It was almost two years before Paul finally got back to Ephesus, and then he was only there for a short period of time. Why did God show up in a vision in some Macedonia man, come this way, come this way? Let me ask you a question. When you sense the Macedonian dream, the dream, whether or not you have a dream or you just know it in your knower, somehow the Holy Spirit has communicated to you that you're supposed to wait. It's not the season to go now. It's not the season, or it's a season to go, or it's a season to stay. You've got to listen to that because if you're not attuned to that, you're going to do it on your timing. And your timing may, it may leave you unprepared. You hadn't met the right people that you need to meet. And when I think about even the planting of the church at the red door, I mean, maybe I, maybe I could have thought that. Ten years ago, let's plant a church. This valley needs a church. Okay, let's go. The Lord's, is he in it? I don't know. I mean, but, you know, it's got to be a good thing to plant a church. And then I think about over this last ten years, all the relationships, all the key components that you as some, maybe you're just an attender here so far, but you, maybe you'll get pulled into this vision more powerfully in days to come. But in the, in the early stages, if it had just been me and a few of my buddies, there's no chance. When I look at the teams now at Church at the Red Door and how they're growing, and I'm not just talking about a hospitality team. I'm talking about people who are taking the gospel into all places. If I had not had those relationships, it would have been premature. I think that's what happened here at Ephesus. God had needed Priscilla, Aquila. He needed Apollos. He needed a few other people to have some input here. He needed, he needed a little bit more foundation lane before they jumped off in and into this. Now when he comes back, there's at least a few disciples, and then the church now has some foundation, some roots. Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Handkerchiefs and aprons were carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. By the way, that... That happened in Paul's experience. Just because you see that, that doesn't mean you need to look on TV and somebody selling snake oil and handkerchiefs that they prayed over. If you will send in $49.99 to their television ministry, that is not what's happening here. But that's if you want to know why you see that kind of thing on TV, it's based on this. It's based on this. Be careful. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempting to name over those who had evil spirits... Name the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, did they know Jesus? No. The guy who Paul's talking about, we're, we want to cast these demons out. So these seven sons of one Sceva, they went in and they said, we're going to use that guy, the name that Jesus is using. Because you've got to realize Ephesus, is, uh, uh, it had amulets and there was witchcraft and there was all this kinds of thing. People thought always, it was just a bunch of superstition stuff. It was demonic in many ways. And the goddess and all this kind of stuff, crazy stuff going on. So they were used to just, hey, use that name. Try this. Rub, your, rub the belly of the Buddha over here. Not the Buddha yet, but obviously rub, the, rub this. Do this. Put this around your neck. Use that. And they, they were into all that kind of stuff. 
And so they said, but the guy that Paul's talking about, and if you read the rest of the story here, this demon jumps out of him, uh, this man who they were trying to, these Jewish exorcists, and just waylays him. I, I wish I had that on YouTube. I wish, I wish I knew what that looked like. An evil spirit jumping out, and they ran out beaten and naked. In Texas, it's naked, naked. But <laughs> beaten and naked, and they ran out. We, and and here's, what the, here's what this demonic force said. We know who Paul is, but we don't know who you are. That's a stopping place for a second. Let me tell you something. If you're having an impact, if you're walking in the fullness of what God's called you to do, and you're living a life that's closely attuned to the Holy Spirit, can I just tell you, there are demonic principalities and spiritual forces in this valley who know who you are. They know who you are. Now, that's crazy talk to some. Maybe some of you have never even conceptualized that before. Do you want to be someone who demons shudder at in this valley? Or say, I don't worry about him. Don't worry about her. So they're not having. They're, they're so caught up in their life. They, they go to church, but they're so caught up in their life. They're not having any impact on the kingdom. Don't worry about them. We're not afraid of them. Who are they again? Because they're, they're not omniscient. But if you don't think that this demonic forces, they knew exactly who Paul was. They didn't know who these guys were. That happened in Ephesus. Verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed 21. Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he'd passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there occurred no small disturbance among the way. Now, the way at this point was Christianity. That's what it was called, the way. I still like that. I kind of wish we'd say, are you part of the way instead of are you a Christian? It's so loaded now, you know. Are you a Christian? What does that even mean? I mean, I'm not totally against it, but I, w- I almost wish we could uh, kind of reboot here and say, are, oh, are you part of the way, the people who follow Jesus and are led by the Holy Spirit? I'd say yes. Are you a Christian? Usually how I respond to that, some of you know. When people ask me, are you a Christian? I say, well, you tell me what you think that is, and I'll tell you whether I'm that or not. Because <laughs> that, that gets a wide group of definitions right there. So a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Let's pull up that picture of Artemis. We need to get just this picture here of Artemis. This was, this was the goddess who they thought had fallen out of heaven. Some think that might have been a meteorite or something. You get all kinds of speculation from scholars about what actually happened here. Something they felt had come out of heaven, and that was their divine goddess. And this was actually very profound. Some would call her Diana as well, Artemis or Diana. And it came down, and I'm sorry to say, I hate to be so graphic, but all these things are, they think breasts. Some think it's something else, but breasts. And it, and it, was, it was disgusting looking, this squatty looking little thing, you know. But it was powerful all over the Mediterranean. People came from all over the Mediterranean to come in. And there was this incredible, when you saw the, the picture back here a minute ago with the ruins and, and this and huge temple to Artemis, I mean, to Diana, it was just unbelievable. 25,000 people could fit into that temple. 25,000 people. It's like 60 foot high. Uh, columns that put this together you can imagine in ancient times they considered it in ancient times one of the seven great unbelievable uh 
things, wonders of the ancient world, was this temple, and it was right here in Ephesus. There was the Agora, which is another marketplace. 25,000 roughly people there as well could come in. There was a theater. There was, this was an amazing place, this place called Ephesus. And I can imagine, maybe like you, going in there and going, who's ever going to listen to what we are? I mean, we're talking about a guy coming back from the dead. I mean, I, how is this even going to work? I just don't, you know, we don't have TV. We don't have any. How is this going to work? This is, we met some woman by the river. Really? And now this is going to spread all over the world. I can imagine that you don't think they had some long, dark nights of the soul. Wonder if God could ever possibly do in their life what Jesus had told them to do. Have you ever felt that in your life? God maybe told you to do so. Maybe you've got a son or a daughter, a grandson or someone who doesn't know Jesus. And in your mind, you're going, how's this ever going to work? I cannot figure it out in my head. I cannot put it together how this could ever work. You don't think we thought that here, even planting a, planting a church? Who, who are we to plant a church? Or whatever it is. And I go back to these scriptures right here, and they embolden me, people. And they should embolden you. Because you have the luxury of 2,000 years later. And you see that it's not just Lydia and a friend who are now European converts. In fact, most of the United States of America, the most powerful nation in the earth arguably, but I would suggest has sent out more missionaries, has given more money into the advancement of the kingdom, and in many ways was founded at least on Judeo-Christian principles on our democracy. You look at that and you go, oh my gosh, if Paul could only see it now, let me tell you, he can see it now, I believe he can see it now. But you don't think there were nights where he was just going, what am I doing? What have I done? I've left my whole life. I mean, I was, I was on the rise. I was going to be a great rabbi in Jerusalem. And I'm out here being stoned and beaten, thrown outside the city for dead. Are you with me? Does this embolden you? This, I read this and I just go, yes, Lord. Father, yes. Use me. Send me. Father, let our church do something extraordinary. Uh, where we have to let, yeah, where it's going to call sacrifice, but let us, let Church at the Red Door be a church that loves people so much that they fall in love with you as we share the gospel. Lord, forgive me for not believing that you can do what you can do and only you can do. And I read these stories and it fires me up. So essentially what happens is, of course, it always gets back to the same thing. You can go read this at home, but they were concerned about the money. Because they had making all kinds of those little, those little figurines of Artemis. And it was a money deal. They were making bucks off of it. And so a great frenzy starts in the theater. And they start dragging people. They're going to kill people. They've got to squash this thing as fast as they can. Because they're affecting commerce. They're affecting our bank book. We've got, and that's usually a lot, oftentimes where persecution comes from, because you're about to upset, about to tilt it, and it was the way in Jerusalem too. Absolutely. The Sadducees were concerned about the rioting that could happen and that they would lose their position and might lose their house and might even get killed. People freak out when you start touching their money, and that's what happened here. You can go and read that. Now, I want to close with this because we'll, we'll launch into the letter next week, but I wanted to give you some foundations for Ephesians. Where did this come from? Catch this. 
So finally, he leaves Ephesus on his third missionary journey, crosses the Aegean, goes up, goes to various places. And on the way back, he says, I want to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. It's important. I don't have time to go back to Ephesus. I was there. I was there for two and a half years. I know they'd probably prevail on me to hang around and stay. And, and I love those people anyway. And have you ever had that? You want to stay somewhere so badly, but deep down, you know that God's calling you somewhere else. You've got, he's got another task for you. And you'd love to stay there. But, and so what he did is he went to Miletus. And what he did is he said, look, just call the elders from Ephesus and have them come down and meet me. And we call this the great farewell to the Ephesus church. Now, this is how it kind of concluded here. Acts 20, verse 16. So, uh, verse 16. So, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. We're almost done here. Hang on, come on. Just be in here. I know that I, I was going to be pressed to get through this, but it's really important that we catch this, and then we'll launch from here next week. Are you with me? Uh, most of you. So, he... He would not have to spend time in Asia. He didn't want, he, he'd spent a lot of time there. He needed to get back to Jerusalem. He was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now, what had happened here? Well, the church had really been planted now. All right? So, and, he, and that's where we get some of our letters to Timothy about, because Timothy was responsible. It's, Timothy spent a lot of time at Ephesus and appointing elders in all these cities. And how do you set up something that's going to have some sustainability? You've got to have somebody that's going to show up. You just can't just kind of show up. Some People get here, by the way, and set up all this stuff and set up the tables and do the work and, and I mean, and, and oversee this. And I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm more visible than most, but I've got to tell you, we've got a lot of people that are, just intimately involved. These are the elders, the older people who have walked with Jesus for a long time. So that's what they were doing. And, uh, and he says, you yourselves know, and I'll catch this and we'll close. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with pride and arrogance. No, all humility, tears, and the trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jewish community there. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Let me tell you something. I take this very seriously. Our pastors, our team, all of our facilitators. Let me say something. I don't want to not give you anything that could be profitable for your life. I want to declare everything in the kingdom of heaven that can be profitable for you in your life. Teaching you public, publicly from house to house. Rooted group to rooted group. Evening group, men's groups, country club, Bible studies, women's groups. It's all the same thing. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in Jesus. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit, catch this, solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. I'm leaving you. I'd like to stay. It's been really great. We've had really some good times. Think of all the dinners they've had together. Think of all the, the wonderful, intimate moments talking about the kingdom and praying together and being together and these loving relationships at Ephesus. And he says, and the Holy Spirit's tell, told me that I'm going to have afflictions and I'm going to be bound and ultimately I'm going to give my life for the kingdom. How can I not leave? You think that was an easy day? But I do not consider my life, catch this, of any account as dear to myself. I always wonder, can I ever get there? 
Could I ever get to a place where my life was no longer precious to me? You hear it all the time. I got to live my life. I, you know, I only get, you only get one time around. I got to have my life. Everything's about my life. That person's not good. I, I, need, I need my life, my life. You hear that all the time. My rights, my life, my life. Paul said, my life's become something that's not really that precious to me anymore. It's about seeing other people get the same thing that's happened to me on the inside of them, and we will live for eternity together. He says, I want to finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord to testify solemnly of the gospel. And it goes on, and you can read it, and, uh, but essentially they begin to weep. Don't leave. It was a hard, brutal exit. He says, I've got to go. And they released him. Well, what's clear in closing on this? What's clear is that these were a people who really understood that they had a task at hand. It wasn't just about their their next vacation and their next thing and their next meal and their next... You know, we get so consumed with our the preciousness, preciousness of our own lives. Will we be a church who is moving in the direction of not considering our lives that precious a commodity anymore? And that His kingdom is the highest priority? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? If we just had 20% of our people, we'd be a revolutionary church. I'll tell you that right now. Oh, Lord, that I can get to a place that maybe you'd pray this prayer, that my life just doesn't seem that important anymore because the thrill, it's not sacrificial. It is, but it's not in some ways because you get to the point that you see other people's lives exploding with a flourishing life in Jesus, and that then becomes a stronger motivation than you actually getting everything you ever wanted. And live in the Willy Wonka life for the rest of your life where you get the keys to the kingdom and all your dreams come true. See, Paul's dreams were coming true, but they had changed. It was the name of Jesus at the very mention of his name. That's why he lived. That's going to be what we're going to get from the letter to the Ephesians. He's going to be writing back and going, come on. And we'll even conclude in Revelation. See, Jesus comes back at the end of Revelation in John. He said, Ephesus, you've, you lost your first love. So we're going to get a grand picture of the beginning of the church at Ephesus all the way to the conclusion. And I think it will embolden you and help you on your journey with Jesus. So let's close with this. At the mention of his name... And then I'll close this in prayer. 